Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Greg Dalton, host of Climate One. We want to hear from you. Take our five-minute survey and help us understand listeners like you and your experience with our podcast. The first 50 people who complete the survey will receive a Climate One stainless steel water bottle, the same one we give to our speakers on stage. You can find the five-minute survey by going to climate-one.org and clicking on Podcast Survey. Thanks for listening, and thanks for helping us change the conversation about energy, economy, and environment. Welcome to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking about California's searing drought and what can be done to keep the Golden State hydrated. Reservoirs are at historic lows. Mandatory water rationing is in effect in some areas. And groundwater is being sucked out at an alarming rate. Over the next hour, we'll look at groundwater, conservation, recycling, agricultural uses, and residential landscaping. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. This program is underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our guests are three water experts. Debbie Davis is Community and Rural Affairs Advisor, the Office of Planning and Research at the State of California. I think that means she's one of the governor's uh, top water advisors. Uh, Felicia Marcus is Chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, uh, effectively the state's top water cop. And Buzz Thompson is Director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. Please welcome them to Climate One. Felicia Marcus, let's start with you. Droughts come and go in California, the part of life in the American West. Put this current drought in context. How bad is it relative to other droughts we've seen in our lifetime? It is really, really bad. Since we started recording a little before the, um, I think we started in the beginning of the 20th century, 1900s, early. And uh, it, it technically, this is the uh, third least amount of precipitation by a smidgen pretty close that we've had, but the impact of it is infinitely greater because since 1924, 1977, the other two years that were slightly drier, uh, we've grown by millions of people. You have far more agricultural uh, production dependent upon the same amount of water in part because agriculture has become so much more efficient at growing food. Uh, you have um, uh, more endangered and threatened fish and wildlife species who don't have the resilience they once did to be able to weather a drought, and so the impact is considerable. Debbie Davis, uh, a few months ago recently, Governor Brown called for 20% voluntary reductions in state water use. As a consequence, water use in the state actually went up. So what does that say about how well Californians and the California government are doing in responding to this drought? Um, I'll answer that question, but actually first I want to answer Felicia's really quick and say, I'll let you know how bad this drought is when it's over. Oh, that's right. That's because right. the fact is, is we don't know how long this drought is going to last. And we're in a world of hurt already, but it might continue next year and the year after that. And so um, get back to me on that one. Okay. Um, as far as conservation is concerned, one of the challenges we face is that people around the state have done such a good job investing in making our water systems more reliable. We've diversified our water resources 
And so in some parts of the state, people aren't feeling the hurt. And so it's hard, you know, they still see the sprinklers running at the golf course. And so it's hard for them to internalize that we really are in a state of emergency. Um, and so we do, we have um, big urban areas that have continued to use water basically at the rates that they were using water before the drought happened. Um, you know, we're working very hard at the, at, across the state to get the word out. Um, we have the Save Our Water campaign that is communicating with water districts and through them to their customers, but we definitely need to do better. Buzz Thompson, I read on a, a website, uh, Water in the West, which is part of the Institute at Stanford that you manage, a quote from Mother Jones which says, to live off surface water is to live off your paycheck. To rely on groundwater is to live off savings. So tell us the relationship between groundwater, surface water, and how that matters during a drought like right now. Yeah. So let me start out by just saying that no matter how bad the current drought is, as Debbie already pointed out, we don't know whether it's going to end, and we know that we're going to face future droughts, and many of those droughts are going to be even worse than the one that we're facing today. So when we're talking about these issues, we need to be thinking not about what's occurring today, but we need to be thinking about how do we prepare for those droughts of the future. And groundwater is essential in doing that. During a period of drought, we know that our surface water is going to be lower. What we can do in a period of drought, however, is to turn to that savings account that you mentioned early, to our groundwater aquifers. Groundwater aquifers naturally fill up during wet periods of time, and then we can use that water during dry periods of time to help us through the drought. The problem, however, is that we've been too tempted to invade our savings accounts of water, not only during dry periods, but also during wet periods. And ultimately, that's going to mean that that groundwater is not available to us when we really need it. And right now, California is one of the few states where we don't really know what's coming out of the ground. How is that going to change potentially in this drought in terms of measuring and having some rules around groundwater extraction? Because pretty much anyone in this state can poke a hole in the ground, suck some water out, and it's theirs, right, Felicia Martin? It depends on where you are. We, we do have the least amount of statewide regulation of groundwater of any state in the country, it is very different from what people assume in California, um, but it really varies by region. You have some local areas in the state that are very highly managed and managed very, very well where uh, the pumping is measured, where folks abide by a code either, um, you know, that's uh, sanctified by a court. Sometimes it takes many years to get these things through, but they are dealing with quantity and quality. They know what they're taking out, they know what they're putting in, and they are affirmatively recharging with water that runs off the mountains and streams, but also with increasingly with recycled water, uh, stormwater capture from urban areas and the like. And that really is our f future for, particularly for urban resilience, but also throughout throughout the state. You also have some special districts you, that the legislature's created. You have some counties that do a good job, but uh, it's, not, it's not mandated at all at the state level. So you do have some parts of the state where it's sort of the person with the biggest pump and the, the most amount of money to spend on it uh, can basically pump as much as they want. And because of that, and because people are starting to realize that you have some areas where there's been such great subsidence of the earth from overpumping that uh, canals are running backward, that uh, infrastructure is crumbling, that there's a loss of flood control, and also importantly, you have neighbor versus neighbor impacts. And I think because of those neighbor versus neighbor impacts and the fact that people realize that we really have to do something about it now, but also for the future, uh, in order to be more resilient in the face of climate change, when we're going to lose half of our snowpack or more, which right now is half of the storage in the state. So if we don't have that snowpack that melts off and refills our reservoirs and our surface streams, this, uh, the dislocation and the pain that we're feeling right now is going to feel like a picnic unless we get ahead of it. And so people do see the need to manage our groundwater basins. And so there is a very strong effort going on right now with nonprofits, associations of water districts, uh, people on all sides of the spectrum to try and come up with a framework for statewide regulation that would uh, encourage, in the strongest terms, locals to step up and manage their groundwater basins in whatever flavor works for them, but in a way that truly will manage their groundwater for the future, off into the long term. Buzz Thompson, how should California more consistently statewide manage its groundwater resources 
uh, take advantage of this drought. Yeah, I actually just want to go back for a second to your question about how do we manage groundwater when we don't even have basic information in many parts of the state about the groundwater that we have available and about how much people are actually pumping. Take your analogy earlier to thinking about groundwater as a savings account. And think about uh, we have a really important savings account that will get us through a period of drought. Then recognize that we have given hundreds of people in some areas of the state access to that bank account so that anyone can draw out of that bank account anytime they want to. And then imagine that we have no information about that bank account. We don't necessarily know exactly how much money we have in our bank account, and we're not keeping track of how much money people are actually taking out. That makes it very difficult to actually manage what is an essential uh, resource today. Now, as Felicia mentioned earlier, we have done a great job in some portions of the state managing groundwater at a local level. And I'm optimistic that we can also manage groundwater at a local level elsewhere in the state. But what's really crucial is that the state come in, set standards for how we should manage our groundwater, give the local populations and agencies a period of time to actually then meet those state standards. And then importantly, if the local agencies don't meet those standards, that the state has the power and the willingness to step in for the local governments. Debbie uh, Davis, that sounds like a proposal that's in the legislature now, and that, does Governor Brown support that? Is that where he'd like to go for managing the state, basically have some state guidelines, but let local areas manage their own water and not have uh, big feet from Sacramento coming in? Actually, yes. Um, the administration has taken a very strong position that the best way to manage groundwater is at the local and regional scale. The reality is that that's the scale at which people truly understand how their systems work. We, we could never hire enough staff at the statewide level to be able to do a good job at that. Um, but we also believe that we have to have a state backstop and Felicia, <laughs> in the body of Felicia, um, at, at the state. Yes, she's going to go racing around the state. Yeah, we all trust in Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but at the state water board, so that for the places that can't or choose not to do it, we have the tools that we need to protect what is truly a fundamental water resource in the state. But but I also want to say something that's I, I fully agree with both of my colleagues here. Um, but but I would like to see us looking even a little farther into the future because ultimately we have to stop making this artificial distinction between surface and groundwater. And we need to manage every drop of water as part of one water system. Um, and so I, I hope that this step we're taking on groundwater is a step that gets us closer to that direction. Let's talk about the incentives for conservation. If, if we're all drawing from a particular aquifer or well, uh, it's either use it or you lose it. I've, I've talked to people in Marin, it's like, well, I got a lawn, if, you know, if, we, we don't, if I don't use it, someone else will use it. So there's very little uh, incentive, Felicia Marcus, for conservation when um, there's no rules, no penalty for, for extreme use. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that I would buy into that uh, construct having lived through earlier droughts in Los Angeles, for example, where LA really uh, stepped up. You have a whole host of places in Southern California that have grown by millions of people without increasing their water use because of a conservation ethic, but also because of rules at the local level on toilet retrofits and incredible, uh, incredible efforts on the part of water districts and uh, multiple agencies to help retrofit uh, inside the house. In some places, you actually have communities like uh, uh, one of the water districts in western uh, Riverside County where they've actually gone and done landscape ordinances in every single one of their communities to say we have to have a climate appropriate landscape and you've got to have that in order to get our water. You also have communities that have gone and figured out what is the reasonable amount of water for a community, a family of a certain size, a yard of a certain size and a, size and a certain climate. It really varies and so there's a, a, an incredible array of uh, activities that people have. I, I do think the notion that if I don't use it, somebody else will just frankly doesn't hold true. Well, you can't necessarily draw the droplets, every drop of water saved is water saved for the future. And as we know that droughts are gonna be more uh, frequent that we know, as my colleagues have said, that we don't know when, what we do know is that we know 
We don't know when this drought is going to end. We do know from the Australian experience where they kept thinking they were in a three-year drought cycle for at least six years, as the story goes, and then it ended up being a 10 or 12-year millennial drought that the lesson that they learned, as well as our own forebears in the 70s at state government, was that they wish they had conserved more sooner, and that is true for every local community. So it's in self-interest. It's also true at a local level that um, if, if you increase your security, it allows communities to be more gracious in helping other communities through this time of drought. And one thing I neglected to say earlier, in addition to saying it was just bad, I mean, we have over 400,000 acres of fields that are fallowed in California. We have over 17,000 people out of work, uh, dependent on the farm economy in the Central Valley. I mean, and saving water wherever you are makes us one California, but it also yields flexibility in the system. And as I started out to say, it's just the right thing to do, and it yields water security for your community. I think the one thing we've lacked is the will to actually just work with our communities as much as we should to help people see the ways in which they can save water. You may not have to go all the way to saying, here's a landscape ordinance where you can't have uh, plants uh, that are different than what would work exactly in this climate, but there's a long way to go in many communities where people are wasting water, they don't even know it. I have to say, we did these mandatory, very modest conservation rules at the state level, which is the first state in the country, I understand, to ever do it, and we did it to ring a bell because we were getting sort of a lackluster response, folks not really sure what to do uh, if they had one or two years in storage, we said, hey guys, we don't know when it's gonna end and everybody can step up. And we just mandated essentially things that um, are not wasting water. We didn't say kill your lawns. We said don't overwater your lawns. Don't use a, a hose when a broom will do. You know, uh, don't be using ornamental fountains without recirculation pumps in a drought. I mean, things, things that make sense. And while we've gotten a little bit of pushback, overwhelmingly we've gotten support from regular people um, and the, the Public Policy Institute of California did a very timely poll that said 75% of the public want mandatory conservation regs, in part because they want their local agencies to tell them what they ought to do, and they want everybody else to have to do the same thing, so you have a common engagement. Let's pick up on lawns, because outdoor landscaping is a big part of residential water use in, in California. Remember when uh, my family came to California, we had a, a, a lawn, uh, we put up a lawn because my dad was from the Midwest and just that's what you did. Uh, Felicia Marcus, let's talk about lawns and culture because it's a little bit of the American dream having a, a decorative lawn in front and back. Tell us about your uh, past experience with grass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, I grew up, like many people, in, in Los Angeles. Everybody had a front lawn. We didn't really have, we had a little back lawn, but it was always kind of brown. I don't know why that was. But there were front lawns. But the difference then was everybody played outside. All the kids, they'd let you out at the beginning of the day. We played on each other's lawns. We were all out on those lawns all the time. We didn't give it a, a second thought. Um, but increasingly, uh, folks are not out on their front lawns. And as a friend of mine likes to say, you know, if the only person that walks on your lawn is the guy that mows the lawn, maybe you should lose the lawn. Buzz Thompson, do you have a lawn? And do you think that, um, <laughs> <laughs> that we ought to rethink uh, lawns in this era of, uh, of drought in California? Okay, you put me on the spot now. So I do have a lawn. It's in the back. We don't have a, uh, a front lawn. And even with a lawn, there are ways in which you can reduce your water use significantly. So my wife and I have just purchased a smart irrigation controller for not only our lawn, but also for our gardens. This does some things that, of course, you would expect everyone to do on their own, which is if it rains, it automatically turns off the entire irrigation system. But in addition to that, it helps you determine exactly how long you should water your lawn. If, for example, you should water your lawn for a 10-minute period of time, but after five minutes, the lawn will be saturated and some of the water will begin to run off, then it actually breaks it up into two segments and it will turn on for five minutes, then water a different part of your yard, and then come back uh, to the lawn for another five minutes. It also takes local weather into account and adjusts how long your sprinkler system or your drip irrigation system is on in order to minimize the amount of water that you're using. 
All of you who are here in the audience and all of you who are listening on the air, my guess is, is that your local utilities have a rebate program. We were able to get this for $50, and I can tell you that the payback on that is going to be almost immediate, and it's going to help reduce water significantly. Buzz Thompson is director of the Woods Institute for the Environment. We're talking about water at Climate One. Uh, Debbie Davis, uh, how about your lawn? And this, let's talk about cash for grass, that's sort of buying out lawns as, as a policy tool to get people to, to forego this little piece of the American dream. Uh, well, I actually have lawn in my front, but it's dead. <laughs> um, there's so much to understand about how to landscape in California that we don't tend to understand grow if you grow, grew up here, I grew up here. Um, I learned, though, that the right now, if you have a lawn in your front yard and you want to get rid of it, you should sheet mulch. Don't plant new plants now, because if you plant new plants now, they'll use about as much water as your lawn will. Um, so we have sheet, a sheet mulch system in the backyard waiting for those rains to come when we can uh, plant some drought-tolerant plants. But the cash for, grass, cash for Grass programs are fantastic. The one thing I would say on the equity side, though, is that it tends to be only available in agencies that have a certain economy of scale. So for folks who live in smaller water districts that don't have that economy of scale or who are on their own domestic wells, unfortunately, that's not a tool that's available. It would be great to see something like that a little with a little wider availability. Debbie Davis is a water advisor for the state of California. Let's talk about what other individuals can do. Uh, what's meaningful uh, individual action? We do jokes about shower with a friend, that sort of thing. So Felicia Marcus, what can individuals do that really matters? Well, I think it, it varies by the individual. I mean, there are the obvious, like taking shorter showers. I happen to love long showers, and it pains me. But being conscious of how much uh, water you use and going as quickly as you can, turning the water off when brushing, loading your uh, dishwasher full and your laundry when it's full before you do a load. I personally don't have a yard, but I have a very dirty car. and uh, It's and better to wash your car at the car wash than in your front yard, right? Because it's recycled. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true, and it is now against state regulations by the water board to wash your car at home without a shut-off nozzle on your hose, or you're subject to up to a $500 fine. But uh, I just think it, it varies by people. There, there are people who uh, call it a drought shower showering with a big pot or bucket in the shower, and then you can use that water for watering your plants in the house or outdoors and all that. There are ways to capture it. You know, in a lot of communities in Southern California, people are retrofitting their homes. Entire, there are entire neighborhoods done in Los Angeles uh, that folks are going where they uh, attach rain barrels to the gutters on the house. This is true all over Australia. So there's a whole host of things people can do depending upon their interest and their uh, capacity, and different communities do it different ways. What I like to tell people is they don't have to do everything. Sometimes people don't even want to start because they're afraid they're going to do something wrong and they can't get it all right. But the fact if all of us think about what we can do and just do that or do what comes easily and then move on to other things if we care to, there are a lot of us. And so that particularly in urban California, and that can have a profound uh, impact. We're talking about water conservation at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. You just heard from Felicia Marcus, chair of the state water board. Uh, but Buzz Thompson, agriculture uses 80% of water in California. Some individuals might think, whatever I do, it's a drop in the bucket. It's really ag. So what's ag doing to use water more wisely during the drought? So ag actually has made great progress over the last several decades in reducing its overall water use. And so if you look, not only in California today, but throughout the Western United States, agriculture has done, uh, I think, actually a very impressive uh, job of reducing its water use through the irrigation uh, equipment uh, that it uses. Uh, I was mentioning a moment ago that I'm in the process of installing a smart irrigation controller. Well, agriculture uses those types of controllers today in many of their operations. So ag has done a great deal in the past. I think that, having said that, that ag still has significant opportunities. There, are, I think, are opportunities of changing the way in which we actually irrigate some of our crops. And in some cases, actually have exactly the same uh, production, if not slightly better production, uh, while using less water. Felicia Marcus. Just something else that people don't realize, that 80%, that's 80% of the developed water which, which the, means what? The water not left in the environment, and the rest of it's not all the water in California. Um, and I agree with Buzz. There have been an incredible amount of um, advances. Frankly, if you go out 
uh, through agriculture in California, you're just as likely to see farmers farming by iPad today when they've been able to have the, the economics to be able to, or gotten the funding to be able to do these drip systems that also add uh, chemication and fertigation is what they call it. And you can really precision um, water and feed the plant. So a lot of have, have done an amazing job. And as a result, we do have more agricultural production per drop of water in the state than we had. The, the other complexity that sometimes people don't realize that is different than urban, in, in the urban arena, we can do a lot more and it yields real water savings. In agriculture, it's more connected. So one person's flood irrigation of a given field is groundwater recharge in that area. So flood so irrigation is not always evil. It's not, no, it's <laughs> not always evil. It's a much more complex world. Or that farm's runoff is what re-goes into the stream, becomes another person's water, um, or becomes a refuge's water. And so it's just a much more complex uh, picture than just saying uh, ag versus urban. In fact, I really think we need to work at erasing that ag versus urban distinction because we do need each other. Food security is going to become one of the issues of our time uh, in the coming decades, uh, in part because of climate change, in part because of population growth. But we have one of the five Mediterranean climates in the entire world that can grow healthy fruits and vegetables year round. And that is a precious resource as well. So. It, the complexity of it sometimes makes it difficult in the conversation, but we have to get to that complex place of figuring out how to honor all of us and figure out how everyone can do the best they can. Yeah, Debbie Davis, California still grows a lot of water-intensive crops. Should California be growing alfalfa, feeding it to cows, cotton, rice, uh, et cetera, when water is so precious? But what about crop selection? Is there a role for the state to play there, or should it just be the market at force? You know, I think the, again, I think I always go back to the idea that it's a system. And so if you look at, at agriculture as just one part of the system, that question is best answered at the local level and best answered based on what water resources are available in that local area and how can those best be put to use both to serve the local needs but also, frankly, to serve the worldwide needs. So I would hesitate to say that that should be regulated at the statewide level. I think we should have some broad state goals and we should ask locals to honor those but i think our communities are going to be much healthier as we integrate and we and we really manage as systems as opposed to uh, isolated silos buzz thompson any thoughts on alfalfa cotton in california yeah so one of the things that you said greg a moment ago is is this just the market at work and the truth of the matter, it's not the market at work because at least in some local areas of California, we don't charge agriculture the true value of the water that they're using. In some regions, that water is subsidized. And so if you subsidize that water, if you do not charge people the full cost of that water, then they will utilize it for crops that probably should not economically be produced in that particular area. Uh, so one of the things that I think is imperative in the state is that we begin to charge the full cost of water uh, to everyone, not only agriculture, but also urban areas so that everyone recognizes the value of that water uh, and will conserve to the degree that they can. Buzz Thompson is director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Other guests today at Climate One are Felicia Marcus, chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and Debbie Davis, community and rural affairs advisor at the Office of Planning and Research, the state of California. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk a little more about water pricing, Felicia Marcus. Uh, it's priced differently around the state. Let's talk about reforming pricing of water so that it pay more for it in a drought or pay more for it when you use more. Well, I can speak about it more in the in the urban context. In, in the urban context, it, there are drought surcharges. Again, it really varies across the state. The Alliance for Water Efficiency nationally uh, is run by someone who used to be a senior leader in the urban water management arena in California, and they are just about to or just recently released a report talking about rate structures uh, across the country to try and help agencies uh, with the tools to come up with rate structures that are both fair, equitable, uh, and effective. And, and many studies have found that pricing really is, in the urban context, uh, the single most important thing you actually can do to help people conserve water. I think it's a combination of calling on the better angels of our nature, understanding what our neighbors are doing. There's a whole, uh, a whole series of technological 
uh, advances in the metering, such as the meters, the systems that uh, Buzz is talking about, but also systems that not only can uh, tell you how much water you're using, but can give you feedback from your water district about how your neighbors are doing, and that there's a lot of behavioral research about how that's a power powerful motivating force. Not so much in the drought shaming thing that we see in a lot of the stories, but people want to be a part of a community, and they want to know kind of how they're doing compared to other people, and if they see that other people are sort of doing better in the similar circumstance, they want to do better, and they find that very, very motivating, and, and that really just makes common sense. Um, but then there is, there are pricing mechanisms as well that get people to think about a little bit more about how they're using their water. It gives them an incentive to be a little bit more efficient. Debbie Davis, you did some work on uh, establishing water as, as, a, as a human right, yet water is underpriced. We don't pay the full value for it. Should we pay more for water? I would love to see more equity across the state in how much people pay because there are uh, communities in the state that are paying a lot for water that you know they might make on average fourteen thousand dollars a year and they pay up to two hundred dollars a month for their water so um, I, I think there's definitely room for some uh, equalization of how water uh, how we price water but certainly I think it's reasonable to say that um, folks who are um, conserving water and and being responsible might pay a lower rate um, and people who for whatever reason use a, a higher amount I mean it's a basic tiered rate system um, but but I also hope that that as we move in that direction that it, we don't just have a system where it, you can use as much as you can pay for because that also you know there uh, there are limits on the system and so um, at, up till now I think in California we've been very fortunate to be able to have that kind of rate structure but I hope that individual agencies are also thinking about where the limits are there's also been some uh, paradoxes where people conserve and then they do the right thing uh, first and then their agency comes and says you have to conserve and they're like we already did but they they get punished and the agencies that then make less money so let's talk about that model of about how utilities can stay in business because they basically have a financial interest in selling more water, Felicia Marcus. Well, this this is a place where quite a few agencies around the country have uh, adopted rate structures, whether you call them budget-based rate structures or foundational-based rate structures, where they've gone ahead and changed their rate structure because they do their they're not other than in the uh, the uh, private systems that are regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission, where they have to go and get approval for their rates, all the rest of them can do this themselves. They can change their rates to get a foundational base rate that pays for their basic infrastructure and then have a tiered uh, ranking of some sort where if you use much more, uh, you pay more because that's going to cost the water agency a lot more to go after that next drop of water or implement recycling or implement all kinds of tools that are out there. And, and a lot of agencies are stepping up and doing those sorts of things, and it's a choice that while uh, difficult at times, only because going back to your board or your council or whatever uh, structure you have sometimes, voters can be difficult. My experience from having been in local government is that if you explain yourself and you spend the time explaining yourself, the, the public steps up. Uh, but they want information to understand why it is they're being asked to pay more and that it's gonna be fair. Again, I think the issue of fairness and transparency uh, is uh, incredibly important in civil society, and the more agencies can do that and explain why they need it, the more responsive people will be. I don't uh, underestimate how challenging that can be at times, but it definitely can be done because many agencies have done it. Buzz Thompson? If you look at energy pricing, about half of our states have mandated pricing policies where utilities do not have an advantage in selling more electricity. California was one of the pioneers in that type of a pricing system. Turns out there's only four states that have mandated that for water utilities. One of the good stories here is that California is one of those four states. That policy only applies to um, investor-owned utilities, privately-owned utilities. It should apply across the board to also all publicly-owned utilities, city-owned utilities. I was very pleased to see earlier this year that both the Los Angeles Department of Water Power and Glendale both uh, separated their pricing system from how much they actually sell. 
So we're beginning to see again that happen in California at the public level also. But Thompson, some farmers say that they'd be happy to have more control and regulation on groundwater if there was less water uh, left in the system for fish. So should some of California's environmental regulations be relaxed because of the drought, serve people instead of fish? Yeah. So I certainly understand the agricultural concern that if they're being asked to actually reduce the amount of groundwater that they're pumping, then the state needs to find them some type of replacement water for that. I think it's going to be very difficult in many cases to find replacement water, and certainly that should not come out of the environment. If you take all of the various sectors in which we use water today, agriculture, urban, and the environment, in a period of drought, the sector that gets cut the most is the environment. It's always the environment that we pull the water away from first. And that has significant implications for the fish that rely upon our river and uh, stream flows. So my answer is no, we can't find it there. What we need to do is to continue to find ways in which to stretch our available water supply, which is storage. Personally, I think it should be through groundwater storage more than through surface water storage, but we should be storing more water. And to the degree possible, we should be conserving water and reclaiming water in order to make that water available to hopefully make up for the reduced groundwater that can be extracted. But embedded in that is an expectation that with a certain amount of water that people are entitled to that's going to somehow come back. And there's some questions about whether the last few decades or centuries have been unusually wet and that there's more water in people's minds than on paper than is actually in reality, Felicia Marcus. No, I, I mean, that is a challenge. I think um, in some ways, we've been living beyond our means if you're taking a longer-term view. And I think being a sort of a modern society is thinking about how do we get smarter about how we use a precious resource. That's why the administration late last year came out with what we call the California Water Action Plan. It's less a plan than a promise from this administration on what we were going to prioritize. And it expressly says we have to do all of the above. Uh, frequently, people say there's all one thing. It's all storage or it's all conservation or that one thing will solve our problems. If you look at what climate change is going to bring to us as we lose that snowpack, which is such an essential part of our storage, sorry, and storage is important, whether it's in snowpack, in surface storage, in off-stream storage of all different sizes all over the place or underground, and this is why groundwater management is so important and such a high priority because you can't use it for storage unless it's managed in the first place, is as we lose that, we have the problem where we have the most variable hydrology, that's a big word, but the most variable hydrology in the country, which means here, when it rains, it rains, when it doesn't, it doesn't, more than anywhere else in the country. It falls in the areas where fewer people are and less agriculture, and it falls during times of year when the, it's not the highest use, which is during the later spring and summer months. And so we have to deal with the reality of climate change making that much worse. And my view is we need belt suspenders, flying monkeys, whatever it will take, and we've got to break apart the historical dialogues that oversimplified things and say all of the above. We're going to have to have storage, big, small, above ground, below ground, wherever we can find it. A lot of regional, regional stuff, we're going to have to augment it with recycled water and recycled water as often as we can. It is not rocket science. This is just the application of energy and uh, money to a problem. We, we totally can recycle water and use it um, safely. And our board recently made it much easier, both in terms of financing and in terms of streamlining the permitting for recycled water use outdoors and for irrigated ag. And we will be doing even more in the next two years for augmentation of surface reservoirs and eventually reporting on the potential for direct potable reuse. That'll give us a lot more uh, resilience. The stormwater capture uh, issue that I mentioned earlier is going great guns. I mean, Australia retrofitted quite a few number of their cities to capture the runoff in urban areas. It's cisterns under parks to capture it. So you, you know, you do need public parks where people can play ball and have lawns, but there's a way to make that more resilient. Uh, Los Angeles is, you know, digging up curbs and retrofitting communities, not just with rain barrels, but with French drains at the end of driveways, permeable surfaces on the driveways, swales instead of curbs that capture water. And they're, what they're getting out of it is they're doing flood control in areas that used to flood. They're not anymore. 
they're getting water supply by that water going back down into the groundwater basins. They're getting water quality because that water is now not running off the streets, picking up motor oil, dog droppings, pesticides, you name it, and making a beeline for the ocean. And they're greening a community that's the most park poor community in the entire country per capita. And what they're doing is they're stretching scarce local dollars for multiple benefits. And we need to find ways to reward that kind of work that makes a community better. And there's a way to retrofit ourselves that's intelligent, but it is complex. And so we have to get to the era of integrated thinking, complexity, not being afraid of complexity, and just figuring out what it takes to make it work, uh, with conservation being the first among equals. Debbie Davis, uh, let's drill a little bit on climate change. What can we expect with climate change and the state's water supply in the future? Are we going to have more droughts? Are they going to be more severe? And what does it mean for water security? I wish someone had a straight up answer on that. <laughs> Perhaps, Buzz, uh, you, can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I, as, as I've looked at the climate models myself, and I'm not a climate scientist, so it's the layperson's analysis, we're in this little band that is hard to predict. Um, I, I actually, one of the models I was looking at, it actually predicts that there will be more precipitation in Southern California. I think really what the moral of the climate change story is, is that we have to do everything we can in every part of the state to be as resourceful as we can, as diversified as we can, as integrated as we can across our water supply system, because we th that's the best way to hedge our bets on what climate change brings. But I, I understand that the general consensus is that it will definitely be drier and that we may see more and longer droughts moving into the future. Well, as Thompson, some think people think, talk about mega droughts, that we, we may be going back to more historically normal, drier times, climate change or not. Yeah. So, as Debbie has already mentioned, we don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen in the face of climate change. But we do know three things. First thing is, is that if you look back over California's history and the history of the Western United States over the past thousand years, the last 150 years actually look pretty good. Over the last 150 years, we've had droughts probably about every 10 to 15 years. And we're used to those droughts being relatively short. In some cases, they're just a couple of years. At their longest, they're somewhere between five and seven years. If you go back and you actually look at the records from a period of about 1,000 to 1,300 AD, what you find is, is that there were some droughts that were much longer than anything that we have seen today. Some of those droughts lasted, for example, up to 13 years of much greater concern is that there were periods of time that sometimes lasted 80 to 140 years in which, although not every year was a dry year, we never recovered from the droughts that we had. So we would have a 13-year drought, and then maybe we would have rain for a year or two, but that wasn't enough rain to make up for the 13-year drought we had already seen before we went into the next 10-year drought. And over those periods of time, we actually know that a number of our lakes and rivers actually shrank in size because of the little precipitation that we were seeing during that period of time. So the first thing is, even without climate change, if you look back, we need to be prepared for much worse droughts than we've seen over the last 150 years. Then second of all, if you look at climate change, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to precipitation levels in the state of California. Precipitation could go up, it could go down, it could vary, as Debbie already mentioned, region to region. But what we do know is it's going to be warmer. And as a result of it being warmer, we'll probably have smaller snowpacks, and those snowpacks will melt earlier in the year. And that's of concern because those snowpacks are a natural reservoir for us, and to the degree they are smaller and they melt earlier in the year, it's going to be harder for us to harvest those for the water that we need. And then the third thing that's important to recognize is that climate change is not just about a change in the mean. It's not just about whether or not over time we're going to have more rain, less rain, more snowpack, less snowpack. Climate change is going to bring extremes. Felicia mentioned already that California is a state of extremes. We have extreme droughts, we have floods. What we pretty well know under climate change is those extremes are going to become more extreme. 
we will have more drought periods, we will have more flood periods, the droughts will probably be worse, the floods are going to be worse. All of that means that people like Felicia and Debbie who are managing our state water resources for us are going to have to worry about how do you manage for situations that we have never encountered in our own experience. Buzz Thompson is director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Our other guests today at Climate One are Felicia Marcus, chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and Debbie Davis from the state of California. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's include our audience questions. Welcome. I have a question about groundwater. It sounds like that measuring it is too hard. I mean, if I were to ask you, why don't we measure it, or why don't we know how much we have, you'll probably say because it's too complex. But one person mentioned there's a framework for starting to have more of a handle on what we have. But it seems to me that's the very first step before we can have any regs or recommendations about it. Uh, you're completely right. I think uh, historically what's happened is uh, folks have been able to rely on groundwater and the way it's um, managed under basic law is that everyone over the basin shares in it, but the question hasn't been called until it runs out or someone's hurt, uh, and then trying to figure out how the community can come together to deal with it. Generally, when they've worked these things out in court proceedings or in agreements, you know, they, the first thing that they always require is measurement of what's taken out, who's taking it out, and what goes back in so that they can manage it. So that is a very live part of the, of the discussion going on right now for setting a statewide framework of expectation. You know, you need to have governance of some kind to run it. You need to have measurement because you can't manage what you can't measure. You've got to have some enforcement mechanism. You have to know what your thresholds are. You have to know what your geology is to be sure because every basin is very, very different. Some refill every year quite easily uh, and are used you know, as a very regular storage. Others are denser in pockets and it takes longer. So it's, it is more complex than just the sheer measurement, but it is definitely doable. It's just that people have been loath to do it because it's been this kind of secret uh, bank account or a bank account they could count on without thinking about uh, limits. And it is, frankly, it's just difficult as a community to come together and make it happen which is why the state is looking at how can we do the forcing mechanism to help people replicate what has worked in other places at the local level, help give the political will to get it together to organize their locality in the way that will work for them, including what you, uh, what you suggested in order to forestall the state coming in to do it for them, which is a, a, a very much of a second choice. And if I can just really, Thompson, quickly, yeah, sure. just really quickly say, I think Felicia is being too nice. Uh, it's probably because she's chair of the State Water Resources Control Board. California is the only state in the Western United States that does not collect the information that we need in order to manage our groundwater throughout uh, the jurisdiction. We've tried to pass legislation that would do that in the past, and we didn't uh, succeed in being able to get the information as to the exact amount that's being pumped. One of the great things, though, is that there is now technology, satellite-based technology, that is permitting us to actually figure out how much is being extracted from our groundwater aquifers without actually measuring it at the wells. And one of the great things about knowing it is we now know that probably if you look at the state of the, as a whole, we're overdrafting our groundwater aquifers by about two million acre feet a year, which is enough water to well, uh, actually provide the needs of about 10 million uh, people. That's a lot of water. We're talking about the drought at Climate One. Let's have our next question. Hi, I'm Miriam Gordon. I'm the California Director of Clean Water Action. And I do want to follow up on the groundwater issue. Um, I, I want to say that today in the legislature, both groundwater and the water bond are being addressed. And two bills that would require sustainable groundwater management plans to be developed throughout the state are being heavily opposed by a long list of agricultural representatives throughout our state. Uh, they don't want to be forced to, to create plans, and they don't want to be forced to measure their withdrawals or do any kind of reporting. So, uh, Buzz Thompson, ag doesn't want to be measured. Now, you know, I think there's a split within the agricultural community right now. You're absolutely right that there is a segment of the agricultural community that would like to 
have uh, groundwater remain unregulated. And I think that's partly because they want to make sure that if there's a drought and they need the water, they can pump it out of the aquifer. I mean, I understand from a purely business-interested uh, perspective as to why that would be. But I think a real change that occur has occurred over just the last uh, two or three years is that you now find a significant segment of agriculture which is behind and in favor of legislation that would mandate regulation at the local level. And I've been really pleased to see that. I think it's because a lot of farmers who pump groundwater are seeing their groundwater levels drop. And they're as concerned about everybody else, therefore, as to the sustainability of their businesses. So there is a split in the community today. I like to say when, I, when I first uh, went, came back into government a couple of years ago, I was stunned at how this dialogue had changed since I left about 10 years before, it used to be you couldn't mention groundwater or people would uh, go crazy and just say, you can't, don't you dare touch this, we can't even have a conversation. And I was struck by how many people I said, we're having conversations about it around the state in coffee shops and bars, if not at microphones. And I even had people from the agricultural community frequently, I mean, not just sporadically, frequently come up to me and say, you have got to do something about it, just don't say I told you so. <laughs> Um, now those people are speaking at microphones too, and I think a piece of it is this neighbor versus neighbor issue I talked about. There's, there's, uh, there's something about being neighborly, I think, that is important to people generally, but I also think there's a lot of fear. Again, it's complex. Do people trust the state government or government in general? Many people do not, and so it's understandable as we're trying to do anything new. I mean, it's been 100 years. You know, Part of the deal for getting the state surface water rights system passed in uh, 1914, 100 years ago, was they dropped groundwater out <laughs> in the legislature. And so I think after 100 years, the time has come to revisit that. And people really are revisiting. But you are correct. There's a tremendous amount of opposition. And it's not going to be over till it's over. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. OK, real uh, quick question. As I understand it, the uh, urban use of, the, of all the water, considering environment and agriculture and so on, runs roughly about 10% of the total amount used. Now, uh, if we all cut at 20%, uh, we're talking 2% of the whole of the water use. It seems like we're uh, also fining uh, folks. I, I live out in Orinda, uh, but our yearly bill runs in the vicinity of 600 bucks, and we just passed a law that says that communities can charge $500 a day for uh, what they construe as overuse. What I'm saying is, is that we seem to be spending an awful lot of time going for the people who use the least water, and it seems totally unfair. What do you think? So, Buzz Thompson? Yeah, if I can just jump in really quickly. I mean, obviously, if what we want to do is to try to make more water available, then the first place you look is to where all the water is being utilized today, and that is agriculture. It is not agriculture's fault that the crops that we require also require a lot of water. But to the degree that we can develop new technologies and approaches that save water on agriculture, to the degree that we can develop new institutional mechanisms to do that, we're obviously going to be saving a lot more water than we do in the urban areas. Having said that, we're all in this together, and we all need to be thinking about ways in which we can conserve and save water. And, and I was just, Ag, go back to what I said a little bit earlier. Ag has been cut dramatically with very small allocations from the projects. 400,000 acres fallowed, the groundwater being, if, if they didn't have groundwater, still it would be 10 times as bad. And this is the urbans being able to step up and deal with really excess use of water. Nobody's asked for anything dramatic, but we are all in this together. So actually, we've taken action at the urban le level far later than action taken that cut agricultural water supply. Debbie Davis. Yeah, um, so I, I just, I want to make one really important comment, and that is that ag is not a monolith. There are lots of different kinds of agriculture in the state and lots of different kinds of farmers in the state. And there are many who work very hard to be as conservative in their water use as they can. But the fact is it takes water to grow things. If you have a garden in your backyard, you know that. And our division between how much water we use for, for ag versus our urban areas is very consistent with the rest of the world, frankly. And what we're asking is we're not asking people to dramatically change their lifestyles. I can tell you about the stories 
of people who are carrying jugs of water in their, you know, their, their domestic wells are dry and their levels of conservation, their whole entire life is upside down because they can't flush their toilet and they can't take a shower, et cetera. We're just asking people, swap out your toilets. You know, use a high efficiency toilet. Install an aerator. Install a low flow shower head. Maybe you know have a shower timer so you're conscious of how much time you're taking in the shower. I don't personally think we're asking that much of our urban communities, and there are huge benefits because the water that we're taking—it's not just that drop of water that we're saving. It's also the energy. It's also the impacts on the environment. It does have huge benefits, even though it's a smaller percentage across the board. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hopefully, a quick question. You say we don't really know what our groundwater bank account is, how big it is, but you have some idea how much we're withdrawing. What's the overall budget look like? In other words, if 100% of your mythical, typical year, what percent flows out to the ocean, what percent is used, and what percent is drawn from groundwater? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the things that is, is important to, to recognize is that we are overdrafting our, our groundwater uh, aquifers, and that means we're actually taking more water out of those groundwater aquifers than is naturally going back in. We have a lot of water in those groundwater aquifers. It will be decades before we run out of water entirely. But in a relatively short period of time, we will actually reduce the groundwater tables. We will lower those groundwater tables where it will become prohibitively expensive to actually use that groundwater. Can I yeah, just add one thing so people know? It's not a uniform groundwater basin. Over There are some parts of the state that rely on it for 100% of their water. Some don't have much in the way of groundwater at all, like the San Diego area. And so every community has a different mix of contract imported water, surface water, and groundwater. And so there are sort of three buckets. Last question. Welcome. I was wondering, what is your opinion of building new desalinization plants to increase supply or having moratoriums on new buildings to decrease demand? Um, on desal, desal has a place in the portfolio in certain communities. It, uh, it, it has some energy needs and it has some environmental uh, aspects that make it uh, challenging, but it is the right piece of a portfolio for some communities. There are some communities that don't have that many other options, particularly around the central coast. As I said, San Diego doesn't have a groundwater basin that they can use regularly to recharge uh, and the like. And so it, it has a place in the portfolio uh, if it mitigates its environmental impacts. And my board right now is considering actively a, a general policy for desal that would deal with both intake and discharge environmental uh, impacts. But it, it has a place in the portfolio. In some places, it is more expensive and has more challenges than recycling and uh, stormwater capture in many urban contexts, but not all. Debbie Davis. Um, I'll take the second question. You know, I think that the ability for water agencies to stop development because of water supply issues, it's an inelegant way to get at a huge challenge we have in the state, and that is that we don't have a good mechanism to coordinate our land use planning and our water management. So, I, you know, I, I don't know that I, I have a particular opinion about that, except to say that we really need to get better at that, and again, it gets back to you know, being able to manage as a system, as a community, as opposed to in our silos. I grew up in Mon Monterey County and the terrible fights over that sort of thing in Monterey County. People hate it. They think the water ought to keep flowing. They don't like it. Buzz Thompson, last word. Yeah, so I will address both of those two questions that you asked. First of all, with respect to desalination, as Felicia mentioned, it has a role, but I think it's quite a limited role because at the moment, desalination is the most expensive option we have for making more water available, and it still does have some environmental problems. Australia, during their millennium drought, when they were confronted with no other way to produce some additional water to meet their needs, built six of the largest desalination plants in the world. Today, when they aren't faced with a drought, only two of those are still operating. The other four are effectively mothballed simply because of the expense of desalination. So it's really important that in the midst of a drought of this nature, we don't panic and take particular solutions that might sound great at the time but actually are not cost efficient and effective over time. Second of all, we definitely need to coordinate our land use and our water resources to a much greater degree than we have. In many communities, the water managers and the land use planners do not actively work together. They need to do that so that in areas which are water short, 
We don't continue to grow as if water was available to whatever degree we want. And second of all, so that when we actually build, for example, subdivisions, we don't pave over recharge areas where we need that water to actually percolate down into our groundwater aquifers so that we have that natural recharge to our natural bank accounts. We have to end it there. Buzz Thompson is director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Other guests today at Climate One have been Felicia Marcus, chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and Debbie Davis, community and rural affairs advisor at the state of California. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. Thanks for coming and listening to Climate One today. Thank you, Greg. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. We want to hear what you thought of this podcast. Take our five-minute survey and help us understand listeners like you. The first 50 people who complete the survey will receive a Climate One stainless steel water bottle, the same one we give to our speakers on stage. You can find the five-minute survey by going to climate-one.org and clicking on Podcast Survey. Thanks for helping us understand your experience with our podcast, and thanks for helping us change the conversation about energy, economy, and environment.